Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. After looking over the lectionary texts for this morning, I realize that today is probably my favorite Sunday in the whole church calendar to preach. Anybody know why? Exactly, you're all like super rested, so nobody's going to fall asleep on me today. I mean, how lucky am I? So, we want to see how awake you are this morning. How much did that extra hour of sleep do for you? So let's get you thinking this morning. Over here, we have a question of the morning. On my way to the fair, I met seven jugglers and a bear. Every juggler had six cats. Every cat had five rats. Every rat had four houses. Every house had three mice. Every mouse had two lice. Every louse had a spouse. How many in all are going to the fair? Good extra hour of sleep. All right, we'll see, we'll see how you keep doing. Throughout life, questions shape us. It is our pondering of questions that actually allow us to learn. Ask any parent of a toddler how many times throughout the day they answer that infamous question, why? Why is the sky blue? Why isn't daddy home yet? Why do I have to eat my peas? Why do I have to go to bed now? And then as children, we continue to ask these questions, still wanting to understand our world around us, but deepening our sense of self and of the other. And so we ask questions like, why do I have to do my homework before I go outside? Why do I have to help wash the dishes? How many more days until Christmas? Why can't you buy me that? Are we there yet? As teenagers, our questions continue. Does she like me? Why isn't my friend talking to me? When on earth am I ever going to use this geometry in real life? Why are my parents so frustrating? What will I do on Saturday night? Why do I have to listen to the sermon? As adults, we begin asking more questions. What am I supposed to do with my life? How do I manage my finances? Where should I live? Can I make a commitment to love this person for the rest of my life? How do I know what God wants me to do? Why am I depressed? Why are my children not better behaved? Why don't I have enough hours in the day to accomplish everything? Where is God. And as older adults, we ask further questions. Have I saved enough for retirement? Will I have enough to leave my family an inheritance? What happens when we die? Have I get, lived a good life? What else do I want to do yet in life? Questions ponder us throughout our lives, and they never end. Just when we think we finally have the answers, will then a whole new set of questions emerge? And the questions are often not easy to answer. So let's see how you do. What can run but never walks, has a mouth but never talks, has a head but never weeps, and has a bed but never sleeps? Woo, a river. 
Some people really got a lot of sleep last night. That's very good. All right. Let's see. Johnny's mother had four children. The first was April. The second was May. And the third was June. What was the name of her fourth child? Johnny. How many wanted to say July? All right, all right, good. I did the first time too. All right. All right. Well, the chief priests during Jesus' time and the scribes had a tendency to ask questions of Jesus, perhaps not through PowerPoint, but they often liked to ask questions that were purposely meant to trap him, to set him up, to catch him off guard, to stump him a little bit, and so that they could say, aha, we thought you might want to say July, but it's really Johnny. Or, or you're not so smart after all, Jesus, are you? Or who really sent you to the earth? In verse 27 of Luke's gospel this morning, it is actually the Sadducees who are asking a question of Jesus. Now, the Sadducees were a priestly group of Jewish men who believed only in the written tradition of Moses, the Torah. And they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's very important for this story that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they very much believed in the written tradition of Moses. And so in today's story, the Sadducees approached Jesus with a question. And they said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first married and died childless, and then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way that all seven of these brothers married the same woman. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, they said, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. It feels like that first question that I asked you a little bit ago, how many people were going to the fair? And you got to kind of get through all the stuff to kind of figure out what's, what's the real heart of the question that the Sadducees are asking Jesus. How would he answer something so absurd? And yet here he was in public asking a question to ignore the question to just undermine the the Sadducees but not even giving them an answer would have made him seem like a coward and unintelligent. And it was an important time for Jesus because he had just come in on Palm Sunday. So his popularity was about at his height here. People were crowding around him. People were at his every movement, his every word. And so here was this trick question thrown at him. So he had to be careful. But the question was so mangled up and it was so confusing. It it required a very careful answer. It reminded me this week of when we are asked, for those of us who are pacifists, you know when you're debating with somebody who's not a pacifist and inevitably that question comes up, Well, what would you do if you were at home in the middle of the night and somebody broke into your home and started, you know, attacking your family, and what would you do then? What about your pacifist beliefs? It's a question meant to kind of question our philosophy, our theology, our understanding. So you were driving a bus... Four people get on, 
three people get off, then eight people get on and ten people get off, then six people get on and two more people get off. What color were the bus driver's eyes? Well, we seem to have different answers here. What's the deal? We've got brown and we've got blue. Anybody else have a different eye color? Any green? We got a gu- hazel. We got a hazel. Are you catching it? You're the bus driver. So whatever your eye color is, that's the color of the bus drivers. Aha, aha. Good thing Jesus wasn't asked this one, huh? He would have said, what's a bus driver? All right, here we go, last one. A man left home running. He ran a ways and then he turned left. He ran the same distance and turned left again. Ran the same distance and turned left again. When he got home, there were two masked men. Who were they? Ooh. That one was a harder one. I only heard two voices from over here. Who was it? Jonathan and Edna? Uh-huh. Catcher and umpire. Ah, pretty tricky. Okay, that one stumped me too. I, I could not get that one for a while. That's why it was the last one. Wanted to make sure you were stumped at least once, except for Jonathan and Edna. So. So we face questions all the time. Questions have many functions in our conversations. Questions are posed to gain knowledge and and comprehension of the person with whom we're communicating. They sometimes are used to analyze and assess a situation. They challenge authority. They shame an opponent, opponent, or sometimes they're used to win an argument or a debate. Questions often give an opponent the advantage as the question sets or reframes the conversation. The one who asks the question often has the power. The one who asks the question often has the power. I had the power of the answers for this. The Sadducees had the power to trip up Jesus. And so they're asking a question about a mystery that they have already considered and actually they've already negated. Their questions are not for the purpose of genuine dialogue, but for the purpose of prompting debate with Jesus, for the hopes that showing up Jesus and showing the onlookers that Jesus isn't really all that trustworthy or knowledgeable. Rather than taking the questioning as a personal attack and giving the Sadducees the power that they were desiring, Jesus uses this moment as a time to teach about the love and mercy of God. How will Jesus respond to the question with the intent he knows from the Sadducees of attacking everything he stands for? And as I said, this question comes at a very interesting time. It's a question about the resurrection. And we all know that Jesus is within a week of his own resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't know that. And so it's a time that he needs to really embrace the question of resurrection because the people who are following him are going to be grappling with this question in the coming days. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the crowds were cheering him. He had to answer the right answer. 
But what was the right answer to this trick question? Now, prior to the belief in the resurrection, it's important to realize that the Israelites believed that one lived on in one's descendants and in their memory. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they thought that the only way that somebody lived on was through their heirs, through the people who came after them. And so therefore, if a man died and didn't have any children, didn't have any descendants, it was his brother's obligation to to marry the widowed wife and to have children by her so that this man's older brother would have a memory passed down. It's a little bit hard to comprehend because we don't practice this, but this was very common in that day. And so by ensuring that children were born into the family, into his brother's family, the family was also assured, interestingly enough, that the property would get carried on, right? There was a little bit of materialism involved here. They wanted to make sure that the money, the property, everything was continued on in the family, not just the memory of the deceased person. And it was also a way, interestingly enough, of showing a sense of patriarchy in the society. The sense that the woman was property of the man's family. You see, the Sadducees were unable to believe or imagine a life beyond death that was any different than this current life that they already knew. They could envision only a place where the social, the economic, and the sexual inequities of this life are perpetrated, not ended. A place of the same old, same old. As Sheldon said, a place where there's nothing new under the sun. Definitely not an oasis of peace, of justice, or of healing. And so Jesus, hearing the question, began to answer. And the crowd quieted and perhaps even leaned in to make sure that they could hear every word of his response. And he dives into the answer. And as the Sadducees, who relied fully on the written word of Moses, had quoted Deuteronomy in their question, Jesus quotes from a passage in Exodus, a fact, a more primal narrative than the Sadducees used in their Deuteronomy text. Jesus does the exact same thing as the Sadducees by using their own Torah knowledge, the written Torah, But he takes a different spin on the interpretation, and he uses Moses himself, the one who the Sadducees claim as they frame their question. Jesus claims, based on the passage from Exodus 3.6, that there is indeed resurrection from the dead. And his logic, if the Lord is God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must somehow be alive in the Lord. Hmm? So Jesus goes on. After all, for example, Jesus might have said, the scriptures that you Sadducees are citing today as the basis of your authority say that the Lord is. And that's the key word. The Lord is. It's presence tense. The Lord is the God of the patriarchs, whom we know to have died. 
Now, how could God be the present tense God of dead people unless they are alive in the resurrection? The text doesn't say the Lord was the God of the patriarchs, but instead that the Lord is God. There is a present tense saying that these people, these Abrahams, these Isaacs, these Jacobs, that the Sadducees followed and admired, were alive. They must how somehow be alive in God. Jesus' words on the nature of life after death are really at once intriguing, reassuming, and actually somewhat disturbing. The question of life after death is as old and as timeless as the struggles of Job, who asked, if mortals die, will they live again? The question of life after death is a question we cannot dismiss but cannot answer, at least from our own reasoning or from our own experience alone. Is there life beyond death, and if so, what will it look like? Jesus, in this passage today, actually helps us answer the question. The God who created human life, Jesus said, including the institution of marriage, has also provided for life after death for those who have cultivated the capacity to respond to God's love. The biblical teaching that we're finding here is that life comes from God. If there is life beyond death, it is God's gift to those who have accepted God's love and entered into relationship with God in this life. Now, Job had just heard the litany of his three close friends who tell him that he must have done something really, really wrong, incredibly wrong, to deserve the fate that he was experiencing. His friends were, in fact, tormenting him with their arguments that God is not giving him any justice. Job had been abandoned by his friends and his family and even his servants and, in fact, even his own body. It can't get much worse, Job thought, and his friends told him the same. He is doomed. The only solution to his misery is to turn to the one he believes has placed him in this terrible situation in the first place. And so Job must cast his life before God. He must stake his faith on the one thing that still remains sure to him because that is all that he has left. And so Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. The word Redeemer comes from the phrase in Hebrew that says, the one who is about to unloose me. Redeemer, the one who is about to unloose me. That is the one who is about to set me free. So Job's confession of faith in his Redeemer is a testimony of hope. Despite all the evidence before him, Job lives in hope of his vindication. Hope that his friends don't have the full story here. Hope that there is one who can save him from this terrible situation. Job acknowledges what he's going through but he refuses to accept his friend's views, confident that he will be acquitted in time. The present moment 
no matter how terrible it is, is never the end of the story. Jesus answers the question in the same hope as Job, that the present moment is not the end of the story. Things do not work in heaven the way that they work on earth, Jesus says, and thanks be to God for that. Jesus answers the question by saying that in heaven, even the lowliest of society will be considered. This is the radical statement of the gospel, that in heaven there are no socio-political strata. That is the good news, even today. The mystery of the resurrection revealed by Jesus is that heaven is a place where those who have been dehumanized will be given life. Those who have been oppressed will be set free, and those who have been treated as inferior will be raised up and called beloved. Women will no longer be the property of men treated as possessions, passed from man to man at will or whim. Women, children, men, the abused, the poor, the victimized, the forgotten, will all be children of God, able to give love and receive love as they see fit. In heaven, those who are children of the resurrection will know the joy and peace that was kept from them on earth. So what does it mean to live with then, to live in, to live for a God to whom all are alive? It means that there aren't any hopeless cases. There aren't any final failures. There aren't any situations or persons beyond the redemptive reach of the God of resurrection. And Jesus didn't understand this reality as being reserved for after death. Remember, it was one of Jesus' very first declarations in the Gospels where he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that the God of Sarah and Abraham, of Rebecca and Isaac, of Rachel, of Leah and Jacob is a God who is still illuminating our dark world with the flame of divine grace. This episode with the Sadducees gives us enough hope to live in and enough hope to even face death. It does not answer our many questions about the resurrection, nor does it provide a roadmap of the new creation we still have questions. God knows that we still have questions. But we are invited through Jesus to trust that in God all of our questions come to rest. Although very few days go by that I don't open my Bible and wish that Jesus would have offered clear-cut answers to all the questions of life just at some point in his ministry, we, like Job, live with the answers that we have been supplied. We live knowing that Jesus is our Redeemer, the one who will loosen us from what constrains us in our lives. And the one answer that Jesus gives over and over again is that he points us to a God whose faithfulness is immeasurable and inexhaustible. 
And in that faithfulness, we find enough to endure all that life and death will ever ask of us. Amen.